This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Alicia Hernandez. What you just heard were traditional drummers at the Sacred Stone Camp and the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota. The Standing Rock Sioux Nation is at the forefront of resisting an ongoing violation of tribal sovereignty and indigenous culture. Tonight, we bring you a roundtable of voices from indigenous leaders in New Mexico who stood in solidarity with the water protectors in North Dakota. We also speak with indigenous scholar and organizer Nick Estes. Tonight's music features work of indigenous artists, many who have written songs about No Dakota Pipeline. First up, here's Hashtag No DAPL by Stuart James. Nick Estes is an indigenous scholar and activist. Nick's research highlights the politics and environmental history of the Missouri River, which is the center of the Dakota pipeline battle. He is with us here today to help us understand the historical context of what is actually happening. Here's senior GJ fellow Polly Denekla with Nick Estes. Yeah, it's A. My name is Polly Tenekla, Senior Fellow for Generation Justice, and I'm here with Nick Estes, co-founder of the Red Nation, a collective dedicated to the liberation of Indigenous people. Nick, welcome back to Generation Justice. It's great to be back. Uh, Nick, can we just have you please introduce yourself? I'm Ntakiapi. My name is Nick Estes. I am Kuichasha from the Lower Brew Sioux Tribe. I'm also a doctoral candidate in American Studies at the University of New Mexico and a co-founder of the Red Nation. Nick, can you help us to understand some of the historical context for oil pipelines like the Dakota Access Pipeline in North and South Dakota? Sure. I think a good place to begin would actually be to talk about the history of the, the Missouri River, which we call the Minnesota. And why that is important to talk about is because the Army Corps of Engineers lays sole claim or sole jurisdiction over the Missouri River, and that is really sort of the point of contention with the Ochete Shaokoni, the Great Sioux Nation, and the Dakota Access Pipeline. The, the Dakota Access Pipeline proposes to drill under or to tunnel under the Missouri River, and the Missouri River is the fresh water source for 80 million humans, right, and countless non-human relatives. So that's really sort of the contention. And how the Army Corps of Engineers uh, maintains and lays claim to the river stems back into the early sort of uh, 20th century when the state of South Dakota as well as North Dakota um, and all the states uh, on sort of the, the Missouri River, or in the Missouri River Basin, got together and proposed a plan to dam and develop the river. And what ended up happening is in 1944, uh, an act of Congress called the Flood Control Act, which later became known as the Pick Sloan Plan, authorized the Army Corps of Engineers and the Bureau of Reclamation um, to build a series of five dams on the main stem of the river, 
all of those dams disproportionately um, flooding seven Sioux reservations, um, but also flooding pretty much every tribe that lives on the Missouri River's uh, uh, land or shoreline. So that's really where that sort of history and struggle begins over the, the, the ownership and control of the river. Um, and so that's what we mean when we say mini Wichoni, which translates into water is life, is that the Army Corps of Engineers has already killed the river, right, um, through damming it because it destroyed 90% of our commercial timber and over 75% of the wildlife on our, on our lands and also destroyed vital river bottomlands, which we used for cattle ranching operations, but also to harvest um, medicinal plants and sort of the, the fruits of nature, which would include things like wild plums, choke cherries, because prior to the dams, we could, you know, depend on the river as a, as a source of food, but also a source of water. You could literally drink the water. That's how pure it was. But since the damming, it has removed sort of that self-purifying aspect of the river in the sense that it's no longer drinkable. And then it becomes sort of like a cesspool of reservoirs that are contaminated by the runoff from herbicides, pesticides, and, all, and a whole host of sort of in, uh, byproducts of industrial agriculture. And what the pipeline proposes to do is to actually cross that river, cross the threshold of, of fresh water, and further contaminate and further kill and destroy um, life in the Missouri River Basin, because it's not a question of uh, if it breaks, it's a matter of when it breaks. And we can see in North Dakota as well as in South Dakota where these a lot of these pipelines are being proposed, whether it was the KXL, Keystone XL pipeline, um, which transgressed treaty land and also threatened Missouri River, or it's the Dakota Access Pipeline, they all come with the risk of contamination. And that risk is always externalized uh, or placed upon the most vulnerable communities, and in this case, it's native communities, it's the Ocheti Shakoi. And to give you an example in this particular case, the Dakota Access Pipeline was originally proposed to be built north of Bismarck, North Dakota, which is a predominantly white settlement. Um, and Bismarck citizens got together and squashed that idea. And so instead it was built south or downriver of Bismarck because they were afraid and they knew that it would contaminate their fresh water supply. And so downriver of them is Standing Rock Sioux uh, tribe, right? It's tribal land. So we become sort of the expendable population. And it's not just Standing Rock. South of Standing Rock, it's Cheyenne River. South of Cheyenne River, it's the Lower Brule Sioux tribe, my tribe, as well as Crow Creek. South of that, it's um, the Yankton Sioux tribe. And just south of that, it's the Santee Sioux tribe. And all of these tribes are river tribes. Um, that have a historic, traditional, cultural, spiritual, and legal claims to this river. So that's really sort of the background of what's kind of structuring this particular conflict. Awesome, Nick. Thank you so much for sharing that history with us and helping us to really understand the historical context as well as the political and spiritual aspects to this issue. What is the significance of this many Native nations and allies coming together for the movement against construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline? It's, it's highly significant. The last time there was this significant gathering of Native nations was in 1974. And actually, it happened in, in Standing Rock, on the Standing Rock Reservation as well. 
1974, that was the International Indian Treaty Council um, gathering, which brought in 90 nations from across the entire hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, um, and in the in the United States. Um, and that was the beginning of uh, the Indigenous International Movement at the United Nations. So. Saving Rock kind of plays this kind of significant role in that history, you know, 40 years ago. And then 40 years later, we have an entire generation of people that have come back to the Saving Rock Indian Reservation, but this time they're doing it better. They're bringing in um, Native nations. I believe there's over 200 Native nations represented, uh, as well as various non-Native communities, allies, Etc. And so that's important to remember because I think when we think of um, this particular issue, we think of it sort of as a parochial um, native issue. It's just a native issue, so it, it doesn't affect us. But that's you know that's the that's the issue um, with that sort of sentiment is that native issues do affect everyone, right? And so in this case, treaty rights are protecting the fresh drinking water for 80 million people. So treaty rights benefit everyone and actually elevate the right of poor working class and racialized population because we are sort of the front lines and we always have been the front lines of these struggles, whether it's to protect the land, the water, or our non-human relatives. So I think it's important to remember that treaty rights are, you know, our relationship with the federal government, but they also are sort of the front line of defense in a lot of these environmental issues. Thank you, Nick, for sharing um, that with us and really helping us to understand why this is such a significant moment and, you know, having 200 Native nations from across the world gather in Standing Rock, which has, you know, as you stated, historically been a place where these types of gatherings of Native people have happened. And so as a member of the Ocheti Shikawin what does this gathering, this type of support mean to you? It means a lot. Um, my grandparents and a lot of my relatives had fought against the construction of the dams that destroyed our land and to protect our river. They, you know, a lot of them lost their livelihood, you know, fighting to protect the Minnesota, the Missouri River. And I don't think in their wildest imaginations that they ever could have conceived that, you know, thousands of people from around the country, if not millions, um, have galvanized in support of the protection of our of our river. You know, I'm in Chicago right now, and we mobilized over a thousand people, and it was the Native community as well as a lot of people from the non-Native community. It was very multinational. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking as I was, I was watching this unfold and I was like my grandparents never would have imagined that this kind of support would be pouring out in major cities such as Chicago. So it is very significant and you know it's ongoing and so I'm still processing what what this all means but I can I, I can say that this is really you know a future oriented project in the sense that this is what uh, anti-colonial resistance and native liberation is going to look like. And so we, we really need to pay attention at what's going on in Standing Rock, as well as the solidarity that's amassing around the globe in support of, of indigenous peoples. 
thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and also uh, spending a little bit of time with us here at Generation Justice. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. For Generation Justice, I'm Polly Dineclaw. Thank you, Nick, for addressing the historical context of this issue. It is easy to view the resilience of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation as a solely indigenous issue. However, this affects everyone. The water protectors are conserving the life that water gives for future generations to come, including those employed in the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Coming up, here's In the River, a protest song by Ray Zaragoza. nations have gathered in solidarity with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. The gathering in North Dakota represents an ongoing battle for tribal sovereignty and indigenous liberation. Tonight, we hear from four New Mexican indigenous leaders who journey to the campgrounds at the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota. Here's senior GJ fellow Christina Rodriguez with Virginia Necochea, Jorge Garcia, Jesse Wayaki, and Cheyenne Antonio. This is Cristina Rodriguez with Generation Justice, and I am here with Jorge Garcia, Virginia Necochea, Jesse Wiaki, and Cheyenne Antonio. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you. To start off, can I have each of you please introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Virginia Necochea, and I'm currently the director of the Center for Social Sustainable Systems, and we are a small organization that focuses on the protection and preservation of traditions that are related to land and water, but also we look at um, beyond the, the South Valley, we look at entire New Mexico and even globally. Hello, uh, my name is Jorge Garcia. I work here uh, at UNM in the Centro de la Raza. I'm also the uh, president of CESOS, and I'm glad to be here. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Cheyenne Antonio, and I am a Kiva alumni, also um, part of the Red Nation, Dodolf Fracking, um, Torreon Community Alliance, um, multiple organizations. Yeah. Yat Esh, Ea Jesuiaki, and She, Nakaina Shle, Adults in Napani Bashishin, Nakai Dashinale, Torlini Dashiche. Hello, everyone. My name is Jesse Wiaki. I am a pressman and activist from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I come from the Pueblos of Cochiti and Zuni, as well as um, I'm Navajo from Hogback. And I know that all of you recently got back from Standing Rock, perhaps at different times or at different campsites. Can I have you tell us when each of you were at the campsites in Standing Rock? We arrived on September 10th. It was 2 in the morning or 1 in the morning, and that's the day that we danced. So we, and we um, had to, it was a quick trip for us. As soon as we finished the dance and just, you know, took in the moment, we had to start heading back home because the kids had to be back for school and another (laughs) responsibility. So it was a quick trip, but it was a very powerful trip. Do you want to add anything? Yeah. To? For us, it was, a, it was a quick calling. We find out that uh, some of the uh, dancers from here in Colorado were going to uh, hold a ceremony. 
as Virginia said, we uh, decided to take that quick trip and, and go and participate in the uh, ceremony that was planned and also go and see for ourselves, get a feeling of the place and, and a better understanding firsthand. When were you at Standing Rock? Oh, I was there from, I believe, August 26th to the 31st. And the caravan we had was called the Larry Casus Spirit Ride, um, in honoring Larry Casus and his work and efforts within the Southwest, and then having that spirit ride go all the way up to Cannonball, North Dakota. So we all contributed in some way, and we had a donation drive, and we took a bus load as well as um, a long bed full of firewood and um, all of our camping gear and as well as the camping gear that was received from the public. I also went up um, from, we left September 9th. We got there um, September 10th and we were just going on a supply run with supplies from uh, Red Nation, Tiwa Women United, Wiseful, um, Oke Owinge, as well as um, several other individual donors along the way. But we went, we ended up hitting an elk on her way there. We turned right back around. Um, we made good time. It was um, almost 2,000 miles and 58 hours. It was a little like, crazy. <laughs> when was the moment that you felt compelled to go out there? Or what was it that compelled you to go out? I had been wanting to go out since the day that I heard that there was a camp where people were protesting and sleeping and coming together. Um, my family was really involved in a lot of land rights issues and sacred sites issues here in this region. So the second I saw that they were they had over a thousand people, I was like, oh, I have to go, I have to go. And I started asking around, but I didn't you know, look around very urgently until the incident with the dogs and the attacks on our water protectors we have in there, up there. And it was then, you know, when I knew, when I got there is when I knew I had to go back though. <laughs> Can you describe the moment for me when you when you knew you had to go out there to Standing Rock? Um, I believe it was the moment when Winona LaDuke issued a call to all water protectors to come up and camp. Um, it just kept getting urgent because, you know, the work down, the struggle on the Navajo Nation with water rights, it's so urgent. And I've never experienced or seen unity be so strong and have it all on prayer. You know, the focus is on prayer. It's just a community, the love, like I want it to feel that. I want it to feel like how it looks like because there's gonna be a pipeline down here soon. And so just hearing about those stories and then having and seeing Winona LaDuke call out all water protectors, you know, it made me feel like I, I had an obligation and I had a duty to go up there. And so it, finally we got a chance and it, it was great. And how about, how about you? When did you feel compelled? For, for me, I feel compelled. I think that several uh, things happened for, for me to get into that frame of mind. Uh, one of them, obviously, is that, you know, so this news through different venues were coming in about what was going on and seeing some of the actions that people were taking, stream actions, and as well as the stream actions that were coming from the uh, actual company and their dogs and... There was a call out for Dan Santos to go dance, and and so 
I felt that that was the that was the moment to to go and support the danza, and also to to be there firsthand. No, but I think you know the the, the making the final decision since this is a, for us is a family decision. Um, it took us several days for us to actually put everything into place and and make sure that we had all the different issues taken care of and. But I, but I felt that, that I felt since they were getting closer to get a judgment from the judge, and I felt that that was the right moment to go and support. No, um, this is Virginia. You know, as as people who work on um, water issues, you know, you always feel that call. You know, there's something there that that's triggered when you hear that there's communities that are undergoing similar things, worse things. You know, is it that and it, most of them against these big corporations that come in into our communities and and with their resources get to dictate what happens there. And so, you know, when I, when I heard about this and especially hearing, you know, Winona LaDuke's statement and then also the images of, of the dogs and that violence being committed against people, people who are standing up for what's rightfully theirs, it's just something turns within you as, as people who are, you know, we try to be conscious of what's going on in our communities. We try to remain connected to our communities. I mean, we're connected through ceremony. It's just something just triggers in you. Um, but it, it was it was when those decisions, the decision by the judge, it was getting close at that Friday, September um, 9th. And that I remember receiving a text from, you know, some of the people that are were connected to through Aztec Dance and it just was a simple text. It's like, it's time. You know, it's time for the rest of us to to go out there. It doesn't matter how far you are. It doesn't matter, um, you know, where you're at. And it, it's, it was time to go. And so for me, that was just a very important point and a turning point that we said, you know what, nothing else matters. Nothing else can matter and be more priority than this moment that's happening right now with Standing Rock and, and indi- indigenous relatives across the nation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? What was it like arriving? What was it like mm-hmm. driving? It, well, it, the, the drive was long. As we all know, um, the drive was long. It was not as long as other people that came out from other states, but we did you know, have hours and hours to go. And because we were driving largely at night, at some point, I was like, this is a twilight zone. We can't get there because <laughs> there were all these turns and we just felt like we were, you know, wrong turns. And then you don't get a lot of reception out there. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden, it's like if you don't have a physical map and you haven't been there, good luck. Right. So it was literally just it felt these obstacles of getting there. But we, you know, we had the intent. We were caravanning with other, you know, familias de la danza there. And we're like, we're, we have the intent. We're getting there. And so when we finally arrived at about close to two, I think it was one something in the morning, and, you know, my children were up, and we saw just the tents and the teepees and the fires, even at that hour, and the drum, right? There was still ceremony happening at that time. I mean, my daughter just kept saying, she was just i can't believe this this is this is amazing this is they just kept saying things like that and it was just this emotional wave that went over every single one of us you know in our families the the cars that were there that we just felt the power of that 
union, the power of us coming together. It didn't matter for the first time in a long time. It didn't matter if I Mexica, if you know someone was Sioux, if someone was Dene, Pueblo. It didn't matter. It's like we were all there together because we've been taught the same lesson from our elders, and that's that we have to stand for our community and for our children and for sacred elements such as water. What was it like? Yeah, I echo, I echo, Virginia. I think uh, when we got there, it was just this amazing feeling, you know. It's like, you know, you've been thinking about it, you've been seeing pictures, but nothing, nothing really gets closer to the reality other than being there. It was it was a sense of peace, you know, and it was a sense of peace and it was a sense of strength, you know, like uh, like Virginia says, you know, we didn't know what to expect, but for all intents and purposes, we were ready for whatever came up, whatever action needed to be taken, you know, and so driving in and seeing the cars, it was just this this beautiful, beautiful gathering of people. How about you, Cheyenne, after wanting to go so bad and... <laughs> preparing all the resources you needed to go what was it like to finally get there um it was a very happy and scared feeling for one you know this is history repeating itself and I kept thinking about like this time the U.S. Army doesn't have smallpox blankets this time they won't be terrorizing us in different ways like this is this is powerful this is this is medicine and when I got there, I was like, whoa, you guys have your own camp set up. Um, I was just really at awe because there's a lot of people there, a lot of good medicine. The community feeling was there, and you could feel it. When I got there, I actually picked sage, like right when we passed the Standing Rock Sioux um, sign, and I was really thinking of my my little brothers, my little sister, my mom, my dad, um, all of the fa- the family that I have um, that's at the front lines of fracking issues and just really keeping them in my prayers. And when I got there, like seeing the, the camp, like when you go down the hill and then you like you see the whole camp, it's just like, wow, like this is it, you know, time to work. <laughs> <laughs> So it was really a really good feeling, the love for the land and seeing how green it is. Like, that's what really got me going. And it's really good to see sunflower farms and seeing the corn grow really, you know, very high. So, yeah, it was, it was beautiful, amazing, but also very intimidating. This is Jesse. Um and I, I think that whenever you go on a trip like this as Native people, like you're you're doing a pilgrimage, you know, you're going and you're taking not only, you know, all of your donations, you're taking your prayers from wherever you're from, you're taking your indigenous knowledge, you're taking, you're trying to take up nothing but your love, you try to leave all your burdens behind. Um, and that being said, on our way there, we encountered every little bit of South Dakota racism. We uh, we hit an elk coming down a mountain. It wasn't an easy trip, um, to say in the least. Um, so when we got there, we pulled in about 2 p.m. Like, during the day. And um, I just remember it was breathtaking. Everyone, you know, I, since no one has mentioned it, you know, there were probably a good 20 to 25 young men on horseback. And they were the camp security, and they were riding around the entire camp, making sure, escorting people in. Um, 
But the number one thing I think that was the most prevalent throughout that camp was just the prayer and everyone in their own way, everyone, their Pueblos and Navajos and every different, every tribe I've ever heard of was there. And that was probably the most impressive thing because it's like, even though we all come from such different places and have such different customs, we all know that fire is sacred. You know, everyone fed somehow when they got there and everyone just really took care of each other. Really, it was a beautiful experience. Private security unleashing dogs on Standing Rock's water protectors speaks volumes about the disregard for tribal sovereignty in the United States. Well aware of the intimidation that they could face in North Dakota, these indigenous leaders did not hesitate to make the journey over there to stand with their fellow water protectors. The unity that they displayed is absolutely beautiful. When we return, we'll hear more from our indigenous leaders on their journey to North Dakota. But first, let's get back into some music with Bodies in the River by ZB1. Welcome back. This is Generation Justice. For those of you joining us, we've been listening to a roundtable discussion featuring the voices of Indigenous leaders in our community, each of whom traveled to North Dakota to stand in solidarity with the water protectors. Here's senior GJ fellow Christina Rodriguez with more on the discussion. As part of your experience, what would you want our community back here to, to understand about Standing Rock? Um, the people who are at Standing Rock are not protesters. When you use the word protesters, that's how everyone gets to label us anti-energy and all those, you know, negative words. Um, that's a very colonized way of thinking. Protesting something, being anti-something, um, is a very colonialized way of thinking. So I always have to say, you know, they're not protesters, they're protectors, they're protecting our land, whatever they're protecting. They have people from a million different organizations, you know, and all of them have a different vision. But I think that's the, probably the most important thing is that it's not just about this one issue. You know, um, I was hanging out, we met up with a lot of other um, Pueblo women from New Mexico who went up on their own ways. And there's an idea we've been trying to get off the ground for years and years, and um it wasn't until we all got up there and saw what it looked, what unity looks like between tribes, even tribes that have been enemies for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, they're shaking hands, they're talking now. Seeing that was, you know, inspiring enough for you, anybody, to go back and share that with your own community. You have to implement those things so you can become unified at home. So when things like this happen, you don't need 3,000 people. You just need all those people in your community, you know. I think that was probably the most important thing that I experienced. It's just, it's a community of protectors. <laughs> How about you, Cheyenne? What do you want our community to understand about the people of Standing Rock? I would say that the word protectors needs to be highly emphasized in any way possible. And for people to do the research behind broken treaties, behind sovereignty, and having the knowledge of what the United States has done towards indigenous peoples within this whole region, the whole Western Hemisphere. 
um, looking at it, studying it, and also looking at the tactics that they use towards us to break us. Um, because the reason why our tribes have been, you know, separated, have had all these wars within ourselves is because of settler colonialism, because of the United States government. It was very powerful to see the Crow Nation come in and greet and seeing the chairman, the Crow chairman and the Standing Rock Lakota chairman come together and seeing how powerful we are as a whole. You know, the whole Lakota, Dakota nations coming together and as well as just everyone within the whole, you know, Turtle Island tribes come together, like look at how much we can do. And so um, here in the Southwest, that needs to happen. You know, all these boundaries that we have, women aren't, in some places, women don't have the right to vote. In some places, Indigenous Peoples Day, like here at the university, it's not even acknowledged. And so really looking down at that, because what's going on in Standing Rock is exactly, it's, it's happening here. It's happening in California. It's happening in Hawaii. Uh, South America, you know, it's it's happening everywhere. And so really just do do your homework. And what do you want our community to know about Standing Rock? Well, like I said, I, I think that the uh, the danger sometimes of uh, these movements is that people ended up uh, idealizing or romanticizing or or thinking that the struggle is over there. I personally, I think that our community needs to wake up. You know, we live in a very fragile ecosystem where water is not abundant. It's, uh, there is no abundance of water. You know, our resource over here is finite. And we're going through the same uh, motions of uh, uh, corporations and politicians that are favoring those corporations, uh, providing permits and approving permits that might not necessarily make any sense to the regions that uh, where they want to either build new developments or or uh, extract natural resources. And I think that our community needs to wake up to that. You know, a lot of people think, um, oh, well, this is an Indian issue, right? Uh, but no, this is not an Indian issue. This is an issue that concerns everybody that depends on the uh, sources of water that are being protected. You know, if, uh, if, if say, for example, the Missouri River gets contaminated, well, it'll be white, red, blue, and every single person alongside that tributary that will be affected. And so I personally, I hope that our community wake up to that reality and understand that the whole uh, deal of uh, oil, money cannot be eaten. I think we have to really get there to into our into our understanding and stand up for the people the the future generations that will have to suffer the consequences if we don't stand up and fight for the basic basic necessity that that we as human beings require to continue on on this earth and and what do what do you want our community to understand about uh standing rock and and know about your experience Mm -hmm. there. What I would um, like our community here in Albuquerque to know is that the people of Standing Rock, that they're standing up for what is rightfully theirs. And like others have said here, you know, people need to understand that history, that legacy of, of conquest, of colonialism, and the damage 
that it's done to many of our communities across the nation and that its effects continue to be in place. But that what was so important and what, what is so important about Standing Rock is that it's like in spite of being, you know, facing this, this m huge oppression, oh, you know, over generations and generations and facing racism and facing all these obstacles um, to succeed in this in this society and to even be well that in spite of all that the people found the energy and that fire to stand up and say enough is enough you know and and for me that's what I, I want I, I you know I'm hoping that happens here in our community is that we say here in New Mexico across New Mexico is you know enough is enough with corporate greed with profits over people we're seeing these water battles across new mexico it's it's everywhere and if if we came together to talk about this to engage with each other you know and what's happening and found those networks to do so that you know we would feel that we would use that energy of standing rock to have the discussion and then move the discussion to action because that's where we're at. It, it, it really is about action now and that we need to use that energy from Standing Rock to propel our movements forward and to, un and to see that unity. The, one of the most beautiful things about Standing Rock is that unity. And that's what I kept seeing like hour after hour that we were there after we offered our, our you know, Danza Azteca, our ceremony, um, that, you know, after that, there were just continually um, groups that were coming in, different tribes, different nations, and you would show that solidarity. One of the main ways was through dance. And so the people would come in and present themselves in that circle around the sacred fire and offer that dance, offer that prayer. And to me, it's like, we can do that here. You know, and, and like Jorge said, we, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. There's too many things that are happening and there's too many um our livelihood and our gender you know our, our children our grandchildren they're being threatened by these corporations and it's time for us you know here and across ethnicity across race across groups that we say you know what ya basta we're going to come together to defend what's rightfully um, belongs to the communities in new mexico I wanted to thank all of you for, for bringing that that power with you here into the studio today. Thank you, Jorge Garcia, Virginia Necochea, Shiana Antonio, and Jesse Wiaki for joining us here tonight on Generation Justice. Thank you. Thank you. This is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice. Virginia, Jorge, Jesse, and Cheyenne, thank you for sharing your stories. Mainstream media is depicting the water protectors in North Dakota as protesters, but this is not how they identify themselves. It's important that communities wield control over their own narratives. The energy you all bring with your spirits and loving value is so powerful, and I admire your generosity. For those interested in contributing to the water protectors in Standing Rock, you can donate through their website, www.standingrock.org. The donations received go towards the legal funds for those injured and detained in Standing Rock. Next up, here's Under Your Always Light by Leanne Simpson.
Recently, the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, David Archambault II, spoke before the United Nations Human Rights Forum in Geneva. Archambault addressed the council in a testimony to stop the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. No recent updates have confirmed whether construction will cease indefinitely. Now we hear again from Nick Estes, an indigenous scholar whose previous research is focused on the Missouri River's environmental history and politics. We spoke to Nick about the future of indigenous liberation. Here's what he had to say. This is really sort of the, the future of what I would call like, a, you know, a revolutionary moment uh, in the sense that we possess the moral, the political, and the spiritual high grounds, and the state knows that. So everything that they're deploying against us is they're just throwing stuff on the wall to see what sticks because nothing can stick. And you can see when states and regimes are illegitimate that they resort to this level of violence, surveillance, harassment, you know, repression, all of these things. And it's really exposing those contradictions because they're trying to isolate us. The reservation that this is taking place on, and here we are bringing in Palestinians, we're bringing in Black Lives Matter, we're bringing in various faith organizations, we're bringing in white folks, we're bringing in you know, all kinds of, of people. Um, and we're not supposed to be doing that. That's not what they want. They want to isolate this to say, if we relinquish our claim to this river and this land, the native people are going to do to us what we did to them. But what they're witnessing and experiencing is actually the opposite of that. Yes, we may be angry people, but we're angry people of peace. And this is what this is what that future is going to look like. It's going to look like all of us working together to transform not just society, but the land so that it's, it's, it's sustainable for all life. The beautiful thing out of this is that thousands of Native revolutionaries are being born, um, like literally getting their political education from this. And they're going to carry this forward on whatever comes next, because people are already asking that question. Once we defeat this pipeline, what comes next? And we need to pay attention to that. Nick, I respect your willingness to embrace your anger. Too often, people of color are discredited for vocalizing their frustration. To call North Dakota's water protectors angry people of peace highlights the resiliency of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, Nick. The unity that is being displayed at Standing Rock is not only a people of indigenous culture. You highlighted how so many different people of different backgrounds are coming together. I admire your embracing of unity and togetherness on this battle against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Up next, here's Electric Pow Wow by a tribe called Red. We've come to the end of another great show. A big shout out to all of the water protectors at Standing Rock right now, and to all who have traveled and are planning to travel up there. A special thank you as well for tonight's guests, Nick Estes, Virginia Necochea, Jorge Garcia, Cheyenne Antonio, and Jesse Wiaki. 
Production assistance for this show came from Christina Rodriguez, Polly Dinetclaw, Alden Bruce, George Luna Pena, and Roberta Rayal. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch our videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Gonalma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Alicia Hernandez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, woke folk. And remember, tomorrow's another day, and you are loved.